All right, we're going to open our Bibles now. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bibles to Luke. We're uh, studying the, the Gospel of Luke, and we've broken it into pieces to kind of help you understand the context of, of what Luke is doing in the different sections. Uh, this section is chapters 10 through 18. Uh, and in chapters 10 through 18, uh, the way the story is turning in Luke, it's this focus on Jesus heading to his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. So we're calling this section, Jesus Confronts. Jesus confronts. There's increasing confrontation. Uh, Jesus challenging the spiritual immaturity of his disciples, and Jesus confronting the legalism of the religious leaders. And we need to hear those lessons as well. We need to learn from Jesus as he confronts our own hearts, as he calls us to trust him and not ourselves. This week, uh, as we turn the corner in chapter 13, we're going to finish up most of chapter 13, not the whole thing, but kind of the middle part of chapter 13. You can find it on page 872, and we're calling it Be Fruitful. Be Fruitful. So page 872 in the Black Bibles, we're going to pick up Jesus's emphasis on being fruitful. Three stories that seem kind of disconnected, uh, but they all have this greater theme of fruitfulness that God calls his people to. It's been a hard summer for fruitfulness. Our gardens are suffering. Uh, it's hot. It's one of the hottest summers we've ever had. And yet our fig trees are actually doing pretty well. Uh, we've had other garden plants that we've had to cut down, destroy, because they were getting sick and dying and not being fruitful. But we have these fig trees that had a little fruit earlier in the year and now having a a second burst of fruit. We've gotten to taste some of the fruit. It's been delicious. We're excited about the fruitfulness. So instead of cutting these trees down, what are we going to do? We're going to nurture them and be patient with them and and water them and, and enjoy the fruit and share the fruit. This is an image that God uses again and again throughout the Bible for what human beings should be like. We should have an overflowing abundance of life. We should be fruitful. It starts very early in Genesis chapter 1. It's the commission, the cultural mandate for human beings. God literally says, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. So at a very basic level, that means have kids, start families, right? But beyond that, have dominion. So being fruitful as a human being means build culture, uh, have families, build businesses, plant trees, make cities, right? That's, that's a part of human Fruitfulness, it's the cultural commission. Be humans that glorify God. Build things, create, multiply. But Jesus, and in the Old Testament as well, keeps calling us to, but that's not enough. We have to have characters that are fruitful. We have to have virtue. We have to have fruitfulness within us, within our hearts, within our souls that are not proud, but are humble before God, obeying Him, loving other people, being about love and justice, right? A couple of weeks ago, a few weeks back, Jesus accused the religious people of caring more about their religious ceremonies than actually caring about love and justice in other people. And so the way this is described in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is is kindness and faithfulness and and self-control and these kinds of virtues. This should be present in our lives, but often it's not. And so Jesus is going to give some warnings to the religious folks here in Luke 13, and he's giving a warning to us as well. So we need to hear this warning. So we'll read Luke 13, starting in verse 6. Luke 13, verse 6. And he, Jesus, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Then he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the landowner is seeking fruitfulness. Throughout the Bible, we're told God's people should be the fruitful fig tree, the fruitful grapevine. We should be fruitful. And there's a warning, if we're not, we're going to be cut down. This is a hard saying where, again, the series is called Jesus Confronts. Lots of hard sayings week after week here in this section of Luke. We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would supernaturally allow us to hear the hard things that Jesus has to say, and that we'd also hear the grace that he has for us in that. So let's pray. God, we need you. We need your grace. We need your spirit. Uh, We bow up against judgment. We bow up against confrontation. We pray that you would make us tender and soft before you. You would help us to be listeners and learners. We pray that your spirit would be glorified in our lives. We, We need you, God, and pray that you would be spiritually present as we study your word. Help us to hear it and respond to it in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is be fruitful. That's the theme, and we're often not fruitful, right? Um, So the call is to be fruitful, physically fruitful, but really primarily Jesus is focusing on spiritually fruitful, our spiritually fruitful character, virtues, love, justice, things like this. That's the main confrontation that keeps coming up with the Jewish leaders. And so as we move through the text, we're going to look, as I said, at a couple of other stories as well. And when we string these three stories together, we get different reflections on what it would look like for us to be fruitful. And so the first thing we see from this first parable is that we should beware of the judgment on unfruitfulness. Then we're going to see in the second story that we should not let religion destroy our fruitfulness. It's going to be a criticism of how they practice their religion. And then thirdly, we'll see that we should plant small seeds of fruitfulness. So number one, beware of the judgment on unfruitfulness. Number two, don't let religion destroy your fruitfulness. And then number three, plant small seeds of fruitfulness. Okay? So let's start with number one, the parable that we already read, beware of the judgment on unfruitfulness. Beware of the judgment. Now, we often think of sin as just doing bad things, right? We define sin as doing a wrong thing, and that is true. That's a a right and good definition of sin. But Romans 3.23 helps us define that sin is also falling short of the glory, the wonder, the incredible beauty of who God is. He's made human beings to reflect that glory. We're designed to be like God. And so producing that glory in our lives, where we actually do what's right, where we love his holiness, where we serve the people around us, where we stand up for what is good, love, justice, faithfulness, self-control, those kinds of things, that's fruitfulness, and that's reflecting the glory, the wonder of God. And we're going to be judged for not being beautiful. We're going to be judged for not being kind. We're going to be judged for not being fruitful. So, so it's not just a judgment on, oh, you did that terrible, hateful thing over there. It's also a judgment on not being as glorious as we're supposed to be. That's what we're built for. That's, that's the biblical understanding of sin. It, it's not just committing something bad, but it's also omitting, right? Not doing something good. It's two sides of sin. For all of sin and fallen short, 
of the glory of God. And we have to be aware, we have to start with this awareness that there will be a judgment on unfruitfulness. So he said in his parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Even that's a little confusing, uh, but in the Middle East, they would plant them together. So grapevines, vines, vineyard, and fig trees. Uh, When you go today still to Israel, when we went to Israel in May, there's olive trees, fig trees, vineyards, you know, grapevines everywhere. You just see them all over the place, right? So they would grow often together. Um, Some archaeologists think they would use the fig trees to provide shade in the vineyard because the grapevines would all be low. So that helps with shade because they're taller. The fig trees are taller, but also with structure. Then you could like tie uh, the trellises for the vines together on these bigger fig trees. So Anyway, we've got like this garden, this farm, where they're growing figs, only there's no fruit, right? Look at what he says in verse 7, or verse 6 and 7. He came seeking fruit, verse 6, and found none. Verse 7, he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So this vine dresser, the farm worker, the garden attendant, He's caring for the plants, and the guy that's the owner comes and says, there's no fruit, so cut it down. Zero tolerance for no fruit. What's its purpose? To bear fruit. Jesus is using this parable to say to Israel and all of us, that's our job as well, to be fruitful. And if we're not fruitful, we stand under judgment. I grabbed a picture of a fig tree just to give you some perspective uh, how many of you ever eat figs? Raise your hand if you eat figs. Okay, why do you like figs? I love figs. I have that kind of like crunchy sweet there. Um, as I said, we've got a fig tree. It's making little tiny baby figs. These figs look gigantic to me. I don't know if this is a close-up or not, but there are all kinds of varieties. There's just lots of different kinds of figs that, that you can grow. They grow well in the Middle East and grow pretty well in Texas as well. But it's a symbol, again, that comes up again and again in the Bible. Fig tree, vine, uh, cedar tree, just all these uh, analogies of plants growing and being healthy, and that's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be like a healthy plant. Psalm 1 says, when we tap our roots down into God's Word, it makes us a healthy plant. We have green leaves. We can give shade and, and structure and fruit to those around us. It's interesting too here to see in this parable, it seems that, that Jesus is the one that's the vine dresser, right? Like there's this coming judgment. God is going to judge the world for our unfruitfulness. And Jesus is here pleading with Israel saying, just, just give me one more year. Just give me a little more time. And he's patiently pleading with Israel to bear fruit. He's standing in kind of a a spot that should remind us of Abraham pleading with God to delay judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, or Moses pleading that God would take him instead of destroying God's people, or the Apostle Paul saying in Romans, I wish God could take me instead of seeing my people suffer in this way. And Jesus comes and he's the one that not just pleads with God in that way, but he actually accomplishes it, right? He's the one that actually stands in and takes the judgment for us. And so we see this beautiful picture of foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the end of gospel, the gospel of Luke, that Jesus would actually bear the judgment. He would be cut down for us. He says, sir, let it alone just this year until I dig around it and put on some manure. Manure is an ancient word for fertilizer, okay? If you don't know what that is, little tip. And I think there's some kind of spiritual lesson in that too, okay? I don't want to make too much about that. You know, preachers, we get off on tangents sometimes. But there's a spiritual lesson and things grow in manure. Let that percolate in your life. Okay, 
So Jesus is here warning of the judgment, but there's a coming judgment, right? He's interceding. He's, he's being patient. He's giving us more time, but he's like, but there's, there's a judgment on unfruitfulness. So we should be aware of this judgment. Um, Paul says similar things in Galatians. He says in Galatians 5, the famous fruit of the Spirit passage in that same section, he lists all the fruit of our flesh. He lists uh, all the fruits of uh, walking away from God. We call it sin, unfruitfulness, spiritually speaking. And he says, those that commit these kinds of things, I warn you as I warned before that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the Apostle Paul is making the same warning. If you give yourself over to the flesh, then there will be dissension and rivalry and selfishness and sexual immorality and all these things that we traditionally call sin. Uh, Both the sins that are common outside of the church and the sins that are common inside of the church. Whether you're religious or not religious, sin is sin. Unfruitfulness is unfruitfulness. And Paul says, if you commit yourself to the flesh, you're just going to produce more unfruitfulness. And people that are about that don't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when you read the whole book, it's clear. He's not saying if you ever sin or if you ever, you know, commit unfruitfulness in your life, that doesn't mean automatically that's it, game over. It just means we're, we are all standing under judgment. We need Jesus to intercede for us. When we talked last week about Tertullian's helpful little analogy, Tertullian was an early church father that said that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. This is a really helpful image because this theme comes up again and again in the Bible. Last week I talked about it in Romans. This week we see it in Galatians. And it's something that Jesus is talking about as he's talking to his disciples and the religious legalists of his day. The two thieves that Tertullian described are license and legalism. Galatians says both are ways that we try to save ourselves by our flesh. License is follow your own heart, do your own thing, that'll save you. And Paul and Jesus say, no, that's not going to save you. It's just going to produce more unfruitfulness. And and legalism is, I can be religious. I can be good. I can be better than all those other people. God, you have to bless me. Look at my life. Look at all the good things I've done. And Paul and Jesus say, no, that's, that's just salvation by self. That's just pride. That's not producing the good fruit of a life in submission in faith with Jesus. So the famous... Uh, fruit of the Spirit passage here in Galatians says, you know, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, all of these things. There's no law against these things, and they're produced as we walk in dependence on the Spirit. I encourage you to go back and, and reread Galatians and see this theme threaded out that there are really two ways to be unfruitful. There's the way of just recommitting ourselves to being more religious in our own pride. That's salvation by the flesh. And there's the way of committing ourselves to just following our own heart and doing what feels good. And both ways are missing it. We have to depend by faith on Jesus if we want to really be aware of the coming judgment on unfruitfulness. We have to, as Galatians 5 says, mortify the flesh or crucify the flesh, right? That's uh, refuse to keep feeding your flesh with religious legalism, or with indulgence. And instead, what's the positive side of that? Because killing your flesh sounds pretty harsh, right? What's the easier way to describe that? It's depending on the Spirit. Depending on God's Spirit. Trusting Him by faith. That's, 
That's the theme that flows throughout Galatians, and it's an explanation of how we can be fully aware and beware of the judgment on unfruitfulness. So the second point is that we should not let religion destroy fruitfulness. Don't let religion destroy fruitfulness. So this theme continues. As I said, when you just, on the first reading of these stories, they seem kind of disconnected, but we know from the way that Luke writes that he's purposely putting the stories together to help us to follow the theme of what Jesus is saying here. And as you stand back and look at the theme, you actually see the religious people of the day were preventing fruitfulness, right? They were preventing life and health because of their religious rules. So let's read Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. 10 through 17, there it is. So Luke 13, 10 through 17. Now he was teaching Jesus in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you're freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. She glorified God. That's fruitfulness. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people uh, rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So again, glorifying God, another word for fruitfulness, it's honoring God, right? All the way back to Genesis 1, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to reflect the image of God and we should go and be fruitful and multiply and have dominion on the earth, right? And this theme follows throughout the Bible. When we give glory to God, when we show how great God is, that's us being fruitful, trusting Him, honoring Him, then producing the good works of of love and justice and self-control and kindness in our own lives, He accuses these guys of being hypocrites, being fakers again. This is a word he uses again and again where they're pretending to be holy and they're going through steps to look holy where they're just fulfilling their traditions and not actually fulfilling the moral law of God. And this is a conflict that comes up again and again. We have to beware that we don't let our religion get in the way of what God actually wants from us. We can confuse the heart of a religion with the externals and the rituals of a religion. And we can mix the two things up. And Jesus challenges God's people again and again for this. Uh, He uses the illustration of an animal. I grabbed a picture of a donkey being tied up. And he's like, hey, it's it's really basic. If you have an animal and your animal is thirsty, you're going to untie him and, and lead him to water on the Sabbath, right? Like, that's not really work, guys. Come on. You know, like he's like, you're taking this too far. You're going to show mercy on the Sabbath. But do you notice how the synagogue ruler, he's he's so upset. They're they're so focused on displaying their rule keeping that they can't stand that real fruitfulness, real healing, real compassion, and real love is taking place in their religious services. Man, we, we pray that that would never happen to us. We know that all human beings can drift into that. 
into saying, okay, I love Jesus, I need Jesus, okay, let's organize our following of Jesus together in these ways, and then we start fighting over how we're following Jesus, the methods, the, the time, the, the building, the, the time that we put into it, the, the secondary circumstances, instead of actually focusing on Jesus. This happens all the time. Now, to be clear, in the Jewish system, uh, Jesus was fighting against multiple layers here. So I want to help you understand the continuity between Old and New Testament and the discontinuity. I think this is an important little sidebar because there's a growing number of people that are being uh, lured into Jewish legalism, just like Paul was fighting with the book of Galatians. So this is just becoming more and more popular. I'm dealing with a lot more people that I'm, I'm counseling and talking to about this. This is coming up more and more. So what's the same between the Old and New Testament? A same moral law. Same moral law. Pretty easy to see the Ten Commandments are special. The Ten Commandments are special. Uh, God delivers them personally to Moses. They're on stone tablets. And what does he do? He's like, let's store these in a golden box, right? So God is definitely highlighting the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant. And we see all of those commandments then reiterated and repeated in the New Testament. So there's a consistency between the moral demands of God, Old and New Testament. What is different? Well, what's different is you've got a nation state in the Old Testament who's being given very uh, specific stage instructions. I like to think about it like a theater. Israel was just a giant theater. They were putting on a play, and God gave them very specific instructions of how to build the theater and what times to do the showings and, and what costumes to wear. And it was very specific, but they were telling the same story. The same moral law, same salvation, same redemption, God requires us to be holy. We've fallen from that holiness, and the only way we can be restored to relationship with him is by his sacrifices, by his covenant love, by his kindness. That story is the same. That moral law is the same. But there are some very specific ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that were staging instructions, and we're no longer bound by those because Christ has now come. So there are differences, and there are samenesses. Now, on top of all those ceremonial laws that we're no longer bound to in the New Covenant— there are also extra traditions that the Jews had added on top of that, right? So we would say they had all these traditional rules, and Jesus kept some of those, but often Jesus would say, I'm not going to cooperate with how you're doing things here. This is ridiculous. You can't heal people on the Sabbath? That's stupid. That's a dumb, that's a dumb tradition. You're elevating your own traditions above God. So I'm going to challenge you on that, and that's what he's doing here. He's helping them to see that their religion is destroying their fruitfulness. And we have to be careful with that. When our religion is our uh, duty to Jesus and our trusting in Jesus and our honoring of Jesus, that's good. Religion's great. But often in the New Testament, the word religion is used as a bad word. <laughs> it's often a problem. It's often the traditions of men elevated over the word of God. And we have to, we have to guard against that. So if we come from a Christian background, we have to guard against confusing our ways of doing Christianity with the eternal moral law of God. We are really glad that you show up for our 11 o'clock service at 11 o'clock, right? That's just an organizing principle. We're like, hey, we're going to gather at this time. Come show up. But if we ever say that's the only way to worship is at 11 o'clock, you need to check us on that, okay? That's not in the Bible. That's a secondary tradition we've decided on. It's fine. It's a gray area, right? But we need to make sure we're not confusing how we do things with the eternal requirements that God gives us in his word. 
And that's what Jesus is challenging here. I think it's also helpful to think about it from a non-Christian perspective. Many of us are new to Christianity, and our culture is a very pagan culture more than it has been in the past. And so just the pressures of consumerism and libertarian freedom, I can do whatever I want whenever I want to, that is the religion of our culture, and it often squeezes in to the church. And those things can keep us from being fruitful. Because we can walk into church, fall in love with Jesus, but we're still bringing with us some of our pagan past that's preached at us every day, that we're hearing all the time, that if you buy the right product, then you'll be happy. If you have enough freedom, then you'll be happy. And we carry that with us into our following of Jesus. And it can destroy our fruitfulness. So we want to pray and say, God, help me not to let my traditions, my religious background destroy my fruitfulness. Help me to be a person of kindness, of love. I'm listening to you. I'm obeying your word and not just the traditions of men. Uh, one very specific thing here is just caring about people's physical well-being, right? As, as Christians, we're a, we're a teaching place. We're, we're a broadcast center for God's word, but we also want to care for people physically. We want to help people when we can help people. We want to be about compassion. We can't let that keep us from teaching God's Word, right? Because God's Word is what maintains our identity as a Christian church, right? We're not going to give that up and just become a charity operation, but we still want to show kindness, right? We see this compassion of Jesus bleeding out all the time. He was always healing people. He was always helping people. We want to reflect that same compassion as well. We've also talked about how Jesus just very obviously healed people more than you and I do, right? He just healed people more than we did, and that's okay. And so we can fall off the horse on one side or the other, right? Christians often fall off the horse on one side, and that is, so nobody gets healed today. Never happens again. That's a little extreme. Like the Bible tells us to pray for healing, and God can do anything. So we don't want to say that nobody ever gets healed again. But the other side is, ah, if we're really going to be authentic Christians, we're just going to heal people every day, left and right all the time, like Jesus and the apostles, And I want to encourage you, you should pray for healing, and God often heals. But if God ever says no to you, it's okay to say, yes, sir, I'm going to trust you. I know you still love me. He said no to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul prayed for healing, and God said, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so we need to not be discouraged. We should pray for healing. Every service, we have people pray for people after the service. If if you have a significant thing going on in your life, James says, call the elders. We will pray for you. We pray for healing, and God often does. My wife had a, a, a big thing happening last week, asked for a lot of folks to pray for her, and we saw fruit from that. Thank you for your prayers. We, we saw God work in, in glorious and beautiful ways. But sometimes he says, no, don't be discouraged. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It's important to understand, when you see Jesus face to face, he's going to heal you completely. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Also, if you pray for healing today and God heals you, guess what? Like a couple years later, you're probably going to die, right? Like, like we're still going to get sick and die. <laughs> like we just, we just live with varying degrees of healing in this world. We live in a broken world, but we're headed for a future where it's complete healing. So, so don't base your understanding of God's grace to you on whether he says yes or no to your healing today. Pray for healing. Seek healing. James says to ask for healing. We, we pray for other people's healing. We want to be a place that, that shows this compassion, just like Jesus. But 
This is another thing I want you to pray for, that we would see the greater works here. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says there's greater works, and that's resurrection from the dead. I want to challenge you and challenge my own heart that even though we pray for physical healings and physical blessings, the greatest miracle that we will ever see in our churches and in our homes is when people turn from self and trust in Jesus. That's the resurrection from the dead. That's the supernatural that we're praying for. So, so please pray and seek that. That's the greater works that we want to see God do. That's, that's the big miracle. A physical healing, that's a secondary miracle. Faith in Jesus, that's the ultimate miracle. We want to pray that God would make our church a place where these things continue to happen. Do you believe it's possible? Then what will you do? Spiritual healing is possible because Jesus is the seed that went into the ground and died, rose from the dead, gives us eternal life. And so this brings us to the next point. Plant small seeds of fruitfulness. Plant small seeds of fruitfulness. So verses 18 through 21, just to kind of connect all the dots here so we don't miss that he's talking about fruitfulness, even though he went on this side jaunt with the healing on the Sabbath. He comes to a couple of parables about the kingdom and seeds. He says in verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Parables are interesting because a lot of times we can get kind of confused by all the little, you know, sidebar things and what's this about and what's that about. But it's nice when we get two parables together where he's trying to teach the same thing because it helps us to focus. Like, okay, what's the main thing here? Small thing that causes great fruitfulness. The, The small little seed that's planted and it results in great fruitfulness, right? We've got the the mustard seed. It's the smallest of the garden seeds. We have a picture of someone holding a mustard seed. If you're sitting in the back, you probably can't even see it in his finger. It's a tiny, tiny little seed. And you plant it in your garden and your other herbs might get this tall or this tall or this tall, but the mustard herb plant really becomes a shrub, a tree, and it gets bigger. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's, it's the smallest of the seeds, but then of all your little herb garden stuff, it's the one that's going to become the biggest. It's basically a tree. Definitely a tree by Central Texas standards, right? It's, it gets quite large. And birds can nest in it. And others find refuge and a home. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Small, beginning small little seeds, and God grows it miraculously. And, and others find shelter there. Don't despise small beginnings. Plant little small seeds of fruitfulness in those around you. And then the other parable as well. It's, it's the leaven. Leaven is uh, like yeast or, or other rising agents you can put in flour and it, it helps it to puff up. It helps the bread to rise and get puffy and to get big. And it's very tiny, very microscopic. You can't really see it. It says here, she hid it in a large amount of flour. You wouldn't even know it's there until what? Until it starts to grow, until it starts to expand. Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You and me have a have a piddly little life and we have tiny little interactions with people and we have small words that feel 
insufficient to carry the weight and the glory of a God who is so good. And we'll never be able to say it well enough. And we'll never be kind enough. And we'll never be able to pray faithfully enough. And yet Jesus says, plant those little small seeds and God will make it grow. God will take your tiny seeds and he will grow things out of it. It's incredible. It's this incredible gift from God. He does it for his glory. Jesus loves to take what we provide and multiply it. Ephesians 2 says it's all, it's all by God's grace. It's for his glory, so we can't brag about it. And he's prepared these good works in advance for you to do. You don't even have to really figure them out. You just stumble into them and plant those little small seeds of faithfulness. Paul describes it this way in Colossians. In Colossians 4, he says to continue on in prayer. That's central. Part of us planting seeds is we do it prayerfully, okay? Uh, We know that it doesn't really depend on us. We know that we might be sowing seeds of encouragement and speaking of Jesus and helping our neighbor, but we're praying that God would make it grow. So we're praying in dependence on his grace. And so Paul describes this in Colossians 4. He says, continue in prayer, be watchful, keep praying, pray for us that when we speak about the gospel, that we would speak clearly. And I would ask you to do that as well. Pray for me. When I speak, I have this great privilege and other elders and pastors at the church, we get to to be your mouthpiece and to speak to others on uh, behalf of the gospel, to plant these seeds. But still, those won't grow unless you pray, unless God's grace makes it grow. Pray that it would grow. Paul, the great apostle that's written the Bible, says, I'm dependent on prayer. I need God's grace to make this work. Paul doesn't just go, I'm an apostle and whatever I do works. He's saying, pray for me. Pray that God would use these little seeds of faith. But then Paul goes on and he says, those of you that don't have a platform to preach on, he says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. He says, make the best use of the time. He says, let your season always be gracious and seasoned with salt that you might know how to answer the people around you. Paul says, plant these little small seeds of fruitfulness. Glenn Scrivener is a preacher I've been listening to the last few months. British, Australian, I don't know, a guy with a funny accent. Glenn Scrivener says, planting these little small seeds are just simple things like you pray for your neighbor. You talk to him about what you're learning in God's word. You share things that Jesus has done for you. Talk about what's going on in your church community and how they're encouraging you. It's like these are just little small insignificant things. You don't have to give a 40-minute lecture, right? You don't have to have a master uh, in apologetics, right? You don't have to have it all figured out. Just plant these little seeds of fruitfulness and, and God will make it grow. God will do something with that. Pray for opportunities. Be aware. Be conversational. Love the people around you, and God will make things grow. Okay, we need to wrap up here. So again, in conclusion, the big command is that we would be fruitful, Uh, and that can include physical fruitfulness. But as I said, often the Jews were too focused on that. The Jews were like, well, if we're rich and we have kids, then we've accomplished God's will for our lives. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I want to see character. I want to see submission to God. I want, I want to see the, the fruits of the Spirit, right? And so we have this warning, as we saw, this, this warning that there's going to be a, a judgment on unfruitfulness. A, a warning also 
that our own religion can get in the way sometimes and destroy our fruitfulness, whether that's our, our Christian fundamentalism or our paganism. Those things can, can leak in and block our connection and others' connections to Jesus, destroying our fruitfulness. And then finally, he gives us hope that we can just plant these little seeds. The kingdom of God grows mysteriously and dramatically by God's grace. All I have to do is plant these little seeds of faithfulness. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Jesus is enough. This is what Jesus has done for me. And as we share those little seeds of faith, God will make it grow. Well, this warning about the impending judgment came up with John the Baptist way back at the very beginning of Luke. It's a, it's a theme of the book. Uh, fruitfulness comes up a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And in, in Luke chapter 3, I like to call him Grumpy John, John the Baptist. He's a little more harsh in his preaching. He's giving a warning. And John the Baptist says it this way. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John says, for I tell you, God could raise up sons from the stones if he wants to. So don't say, I'm connected to some religion somewhere. He's like, no, that's not it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And John goes on and he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We have to hear this. If you're new to our church, our church tends to be, uh, by personality, a church that leans hard into compassion. Uh, loving people, showing kindness to people, savoring the delight of Jesus. But, but when these hard sayings are here, we have, to, we have to listen to them. We have to hear these things. There is a coming judgment. John the Baptist says there's, there's an axe at the root of the trees. It is not looking good. Jesus actually says similar things, right? In our passage today, he gives this parable about the tree. And if it doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be cut down. In John chapter 15, He's using the grapevine analogy. And he says very similar things. He says this grapevine is going to be cut down if it doesn't bear fruit. But Jesus, Jesus gives us hope. Jesus says this in, in John 15. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he's the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, don't. Don't get all worked up about the problem of your fruitfulness and just say, I'm going to redouble my efforts to being really, really religious or I'm going to redouble my efforts to following my own heart. He says, look to me. Jesus says, look to him as the source of true fruitfulness. He says, abide in me. Trust in me. I'm the source of fruitfulness. He's the fruitful vine, the fruitful tree that was actually cut down in our place. Jesus is the one that bore the judgment. He was perfectly fruitful. And yet he steps in and takes our place on the cross. He's cut down for us. And so Jesus' promise here is abide in me, trust me, and in me you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Trust him, run to Jesus, and you will be fruitful. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you invite us to find peace and rest with you. Help us, we pray. We see these warnings, they're scary. Yeah, and that can just often make us want to just run back to our flesh again. Help us to run to you. Help us to see that, that we must abide in you, that you're the source of fruitfulness, that apart from you, we can do nothing. But in you, we have hope. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.